Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Um, dear Lord Jesus, we uh, are so reliant upon you and we are reminded even more as we look at texts like we'll be in today um, that we need your help. We need your help to walk faithfully uh, in line of what it is you've commanded us to do, to not equate salvation to something which it is not, but also to not neglect something which salvation demands. And so, Lord, I pray that you sustain us uh, with the tension of the gospel, that you bind our hearts and minds and the Holy Spirit in a way which only you can do. We pray all these things so that we might be different for your glory and for the love of one another. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm sure we all have had places where we ourselves or someone else acted in a manner that was unfitting, seeming in the context of it. Most of us know the pain of trying to choke back a laugh or a smile in a circumstance where you shouldn't be laughing or smiling. And it's understood that there are often places in life where some authority figure comes and says, you can't do that here. For instance, one of the most somber places that I have been has been the Holocaust Museum in New York City, and it would have been completely reasonable for an employee to find a group of rabble-rousing teenagers running around laughing at pictures and making, uh, making a bunch of ruckus, as teenagers do, to come up and say, you can't do that here. It's inappropriate, given the weight of what it is that we're around. Or in Missoula at McClay Bridge, police are cracking down on people jumping off the bridge into the river, and so it's not uncommon to drive by and see a police officer chastising a young man who tried to climb the bridge and saying, you can't do that here. It's dangerous. Or at the Missoula Art Museum downtown, they've got all this outdoor art, and they have to place signs everywhere, like, don't skateboard on the art. Because if you were to do that, someone would come out and say, you can't do that here. This isn't what it's made for. You see, it's fairly straightforward to understand that the context that you're in deems some activities and some actions to be either inappropriate, dangerous, or improper. And that's the point that Paul's making to the church in Ephesus in a book of the Bible called Ephesians. Paul is writing to the church, telling them this very thing. But according to Paul, our actions are less conditional upon where we are and more conditional upon who we are. And Paul, through the first half of Ephesians, we've kind of turned the corner in the home stretch in the second half. In the first half of Ephesians, he is helping believers. That's if you believe that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. If you believe in that message, Paul is helping locate our own identity in Christ. We've seen this phrase, in Christ, repeated over and over again, and he says things like this, in Christ you are blessed, in Christ you are adopted, in Christ you are united, in Christ you are predestined, in Christ you are granted inheritance, in Christ you are sealed with the certainty of salvation. A lot of things happen to us in Christ, and his point is because of what Jesus has done, you now have a new identity. You are now someone different which means in certain places, God, our Father, says to us, you can't do that here. Or, this is how you act in this circumstance. In fact, this is exactly the appeal to authority that Paul opens this with. In verse 17, which uh, was just read for us, Paul basically says this. He says, now I say this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you live differently. In other words, salvation is 100% a divine gift that Jesus did when he pursued us. But when Jesus gives us salvation through faith, salvation really changes people. This is why the biblical writers refer to Christians oftentimes as converts. Conversion implies not business as usual. Conversion implies something is different. It looks differently, acts differently, and is used differently. And as much as the idea in the language of converts or conversions is typically identified with religion, everybody understands conversion. 
In fact, I would say that our secular and and unbiblical society today understands conversion more clearly than even we do inside the church sometimes. They know that in order for there to be integrity, regardless of if the decision is biblical or not, not only a decision needs to be made, but it needs to define our lives. We need to dedicate our life to the cause of our decision, or you don't really have integrity. Your cause isn't quite powerful enough. For instance, there was one secular scholar um, who held to a biblical view of marriage between a man and a woman, um, but he didn't hold to it because of scripture. He didn't hold to it because of anything theological. And eventually, he switched his position. And he was shocked that even after he affirmed same-sex marriage, he was still villainized inside the movement. Why? Because his decision was made because of an economic viewpoint of marriage, not because of what it meant in terms of the freedom to love who we want to love. And while he affirmed it, that culture said, you're not fully converted. It's not fully taken root in your heart. I know another family who was turned down in adoption because the uh, social worker asked them, knowing they were a believing couple, they said, what would happen? Would you continue to love your child if your child self-identified as a different gender or as homosexual later in life? And they said, absolutely, absolutely we would love our child regardless of that decision. But the social worker asked a more clarifying question. Specifically, no, 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 but would you celebrate their orientation and their sexuality? And the believing couple had to say, because of the goodness that's in scripture that defines gender and marriage and sexuality for us, they said no. And they were denied the request to adopt their child because they weren't fully converted. Our world understands that if you're concerned about climate change, but you're unwilling to change your consumer habits or your lifestyle, you don't really believe it to be a problem. You're not converted. You see, it's true and realistic to recognize the reality that if your cause doesn't change your actions, then your cause lacks some sort of compulsion or some sort of power. But this is where the cultural narrative splits from the biblical narrative. Culturally, every new generation and every new wave of what is new brings with it new pledges and new demands so that if you do those things, if you put in the work, if you make the changes necessary, hopefully whoever the cultural elites are will will name you as a convert. But in Christianity, the story is far different. In Christianity, Jesus has done everything required to give us the name Christian. To say to us, you are converted. We simply believe in what Jesus has done. But when we believe, when Jesus calls us converts by grace, we really are converted. And that change enables us to live out our salvation in a way that we never deemed possible before. And in this last half of the book of Ephesians, in our relationships, in our fight against sin, and in the decisions that we make, Paul is fighting for a gospel-centered conversion which recognizes what Jesus has done, but how that empowers us to live differently in light of the new identity we have in Jesus. And what we're going to see today in Ephesians chapter 4 are three aspects of conversion, three truths that help us understand how the Bible looks at and speaks about conversion. And what we're going to see are three things. We're going to see the need for conversion, the hope for conversion, and the life of conversion. The need, the hope, and the life of conversion. And in the next two weeks, we're going to hear a lot of imperatives, which are just commands. We're going to hear commands from Paul. But we need to remember that the texts that we're in are part of a broader letter, which means we need God's help to not just dive into the commands and neglect the rest of the book of Ephesians, but instead we need to hold on to these commands and the significance of the gospel, and we need to realize that our problems actually go far deeper than our actions. And this is where Paul starts this week with the first point when he stresses the need of conversion. The need of conversion. Let's read verses 17 through 19 of Ephesians 4. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord. In other words, Paul is really leveraging. This isn't just my opinion. This is what God himself says to his church. That you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do 
in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So in short, Paul starts with this. Why do you need to change? Why should you walk differently? Why do you need to be converted not only in your mind, but in the actions and desires of your life? It makes it clear. Because the way in which you lived prior to Jesus saving you is a way that produces no good fruit. You don't want this kind of fruit. As Christians, if you believe in what God is saying about how uh, Jesus saves us from our sin then you're one to realize that not only God wants, that God wants us to change, and God desires us to change, and God, in fact, demands us to change, but we're able to step back and see that we should want to change, that the former habits and the former lifestyle we live provide none of the good that we so desperately long for. In fact, Paul in Romans says that those who live in this life, those who labor hard for this life, those who are vineyard keepers of the fruit of this life find that the fruit they work hard for is death. You taste it, and it's bitter, and it's painful, but it demands so much of our life. And the point, that's the point Paul is making when he says here, you shouldn't walk as the Gentiles do. Now, this theme of Gentiles and Jews um, is something that's been really prevalent as we've been working through the book of Ephesians. And when he's talking about Gentiles, it's not only just any ethnicity that is not Jewish, but it is also kind of the moniker for anyone who is apart from Jesus, anyone who is outside of the covenant of salvation that God gives to his people. And that's been the problem all throughout the history of the world, is that there were those who were in the covenant and those who were outside the covenant. But Paul in Ephesians is talking about the mystery of the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 6, Paul says, The mystery of the gospel is this, that Gentiles are fellow members with us through the gospel. That the gospel takes those who were not part of the people and makes them a people. It takes foreigners and makes them citizens. It takes outsiders and makes them insiders. And that's the truth of the gospel that I hope you know today. That regardless of where you are or what you've done, that it is Jesus and what he did on the cross that calls us to him. That unites us to him independent of what we have done or what we could do. Jesus did the work for us. And in light of this gospel, Paul's point is, is if you have been brought near by Jesus, if you have been called out of darkness into light, then you have been adopted and you've been given a new identity in Jesus. The, there was a preacher in the 1700s and a traveling evangelist named George Whitfield, and he often told this story. Uh, it was a fictitious story of a man who died, went to heaven and stood at heaven's gate and St. Peter was there and uh, the man says to St. Peter, he's kind of like peeking over the wall, he said, hey, what you got in there? You got any Anglicans in there? St. Peter's like, no, no Anglicans here. He says, what about Presbyterians? You got some Presbyterians in there? He says, no, there are no Presbyterians in here, which we Baptists are like, yeah, absolutely. And then he says, so, so of course heaven's filled with only Baptists, right? And St. Peter says, no, we don't have any Baptists in here either. And so the exasperated man says, what in the world is in there? What's in heaven? And St. Peter says, Christians. There are Christians in heaven. And Paul makes this same point in Galatians chapter 3 where he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. What this means is that there's no innate goodness or badness to being Anglican or Presbyterian or Baptist or male or female or Jew or Greek or American or Hispanic because salvation doesn't erase those things. It doesn't kill our gender. It doesn't erase our nationality. But what it does do is it gives us a new identity inside of all of those. You are now in Christ. Your primary means of identification is the only identification that shapes life, not only in this world, but in the world to come, that you stand as a blood-bought child of God through Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is, is if you have been called, if you have been recommissioned, which is what we looked at last week, 
If you've been made alive in Jesus, why would you go back to living like someone who is apart from Jesus? And he points out the foolishness of this kind of lifestyle in verses 18 through 19. He says this, they are darkened, that being those who are separated from Jesus, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become calloused and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So in the 1800s, in London, there was a massive cholera outbreak that would destroy entire city blocks and leave uh, orphans and hundreds of people dead in its wake in the matter of merely a day or two. And what happened was, is modern science at that time says that because cholera affects your, uh, you in a way that you might want to camp out in the bathroom for a while, people died of dehydration. And so they said, the cure is to hydrate them, to have them drink more and more water. The unfortunate reality was, is that there was a scientist in that day who discovered that the water was polluted. And it was precisely the water that was giving people cholera. And so the very prescription continued the poison. What people thirsted for as a cure only produced more and more death. And so this scientist returned back to his community to labor for a cure, but he didn't drink the water. That doesn't come as shocking to any of us. Why? Because his eyes were opened. He saw clearly the hazards of life as it used to be. And that's what our conversion does to us. It opens our eyes so that we can see the danger of the sin that was once so normal to us, but now stands as a very hazard to our health. And this is Paul's point here. If our greatest problem, the problem throughout all of Ephesians, the problem throughout all of Scripture, is that we do not have access to God, but that the gospel brings us near to God, why would we want to go back as living as if we were separated from him again? Why would we go back to that pump? Why would we sip again on that water? And he says of those who are still in sin, he says there's this threefold problem behind it. He says that their understanding is darkened, their mind is darkened. He says they're then, therefore, relationally separated from God, alienated from God. This is the same language that Paul used earlier in the book, talking about Gentiles. But then he says they have a hardness of heart which manifests itself in all sorts of sinful tendencies. Heart, so not being able to see leads to relational distance, which leads to the practice of sin. And what Paul has done all throughout the book of Ephesians so far is he wants us to see the hopelessness that sin brings to us. Do you see how hopeless it is? The head kills the heart, which poisons the hands. And have you ever wondered how it is that you could sit down and you could preach the gospel to someone, or they can even come to you from a secular perspective and they can say, let me tell you the doctrine of atonement. The doctrine of atonement is that you are sinful, that there needs to be a meaningful sacrifice, that Christ came as God in the flesh to die the death that humanity deserved, but also as a God to make up for all the sins of the past, and he rose again so there might be a new life. If you go and read a book on the philosophy of Christianity, you're going to see secular men saying that. They know the gospel, but they don't believe it. How is that? There's a group of, in, a, in the scientific community that affirms that there has to be intelligent design behind our world, that we didn't just evolve and get here, and yet they don't believe in God. How is it someone can know so clearly but still not understand? Paul tells us, doesn't he? Our minds are darkened. You see, we don't have a problem of information in our minds. We have a problem of hardness in our hearts. Our hearts are turned against God. And no amount of evidence or arguing will ever be able to change it. And because of that, we are separated from God. And because of that, Paul says there's the slippery slope of sin. And I want to say two things at this juncture that relate to our need for conversion. The first is that this text shows that those who are in sin have a desperate need for Jesus. 
If you're in here today, and I don't care whose standard it is, but if you feel it anyway, you don't measure up to a standard, and you're burdened by that, I want to encourage you. I want to praise God that you have that awareness that something in your life is not right. You see, Paul makes it clear here that sin progressively calluses our hearts. We can quickly become unfeeling and numb to our own sin, not realizing that the water we're drinking is slowly killing and poisoning us, which means if you feel convicted, if you feel guilty, if there's a sore spot on your life that you just can't shake, praise God that you feel the danger of sin. Praise God that it might be through this very means that God is calling you to Jesus and saying, you don't measure up. You can't do it. But my son can. And he did. And he did it for you. And what we'll see next week is what this means is that regardless of how shameful, regardless of how how yucky or how burdening our sin is, we can actually bring it into this light safely because of what Jesus has done. It is good to be convicted by sin when we come and we give it to Jesus in light of the gospel. So I encourage you, if that's you, to hear that hope today and come back next week as we see how Christianity allows us to uniquely deal with sin in a way that no other world religion allows us to. Second, if you're a believer in here today, you probably read the text that Paul just read about a lifestyle of sensuality and impurity, and you're quick to say, if I lived that way, I would never be saved. We understand that, that this kind of life doesn't produce on its own conversion. We needed Jesus to come and to save us. But if we're serious, don't we often go back to living this way? Not because we think it saves us. We know that. We know that Jesus saves. But don't we sometimes drift back or look back into our old life because we think it might satisfy us? But this is the silliness that Paul is showing to us. A culture which cannot lead you to life is certainly a culture which cannot satisfy you in life. And it might be wise at this point for you to consider a question when it comes to your desires, when it comes to what you view as satisfying in life. Are your desires actually subtle grabs for the promises of sin? There are many things that we can do because we have freedom in Christ. We can mountain bike, we can raft the rivers, we can go on vacation, we could spend money because we are free in Christ to do that. But it's a, it's a sober reality to check your heart as to if you're acting in freedom in Christ or whether you're looking for a fill-in for Christ. Thinking that these things offer the promise of satisfaction, of comfort, and of peace. Because the truth is, and where Paul is now going to go, is that we learn from everything. And the challenge of conversion is that we need to unlearn the promises of our world. It has been woven into our heart to desire as the world desires, to hope in the promises of the world. But this is where Paul holds up his second point today, the hope of conversion. If we're not careful, we as believers, we as people who have been bought by Jesus, adopted by God himself, we can subtly begin to take counsel from the world instead of taking counsel from Christ. But Paul here holds up a greater teacher when he continues and he says this in verses 20 through 24. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in holiness. And so when when you think about change inside of your salvation, what do you think about? Do you see it as something that is needed and necessary? Do you see it as something that is unnecessary? You see, Paul here uh, says that there are are often two reasons inside of our conversion that we don't let our salvation shape our actions, that it maintains a decision in our mind without ever affecting our heart or our hands. And the first is that we don't think it's necessary to change. Jesus has saved me. Super. We'll write it out until we get there. It's not necessary to change. But Paul just showed the futility of that. He showed the danger of that. He showed the need to put that lie away from us and to take up the truth, which is in Christ. 
The second reason that we might be impartial to this is because we feel that we can't actually change. And this is where Paul reminds us of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. If salvation were based in our ability, we're all destined to fail. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't do what is right to earn salvation. But Jesus did. And salvation is therefore about what Jesus has done to clean us up so that we might continue in his power, in his grace, in our own life. And that's why Paul says this. He says, if you've heard Christ, you have heard the truth about how we are to live. You have heard the truth of what it means to live as a Christian. And there's a little bit of wordplay in this text that we can't quite pick up in English. But Paul in verse 9 says that Gentiles are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And the word greedy has this Greek root word of fullness in it. That you are greedy because you want to be full. You want to find satisfaction. You want to fill up what is lacking. It is to be desirous and gluttonous for what Paul says is impure gain. Sensuality, sin, the kind of naughty things that the world holds out there as a promise. We are craving them. It's like an itch that you can't quite scratch. But every time you scratch it, it gets worse. And then it itches more, and you scratch it, and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's like the water we sip, hoping to bring us a cure, but only worsening our condition. And we see how quickly sin escalates. Because I don't know if you've experienced this in your life. We've certainly seen it in our world. But sin never plateaus. Sin is never safe to manage and put in a cage. Flirty conversations lead to affairs. Anger turns to hate. Porn turns to riskier sexual behavior. We know what it's like to be greedy for a fullness that sin promises but can never provide. And that same root word for fullness shows up in other places in Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 18 through 19. It's bolded up there so you can see the word. So we might have strength to comprehend with all the saints... What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 10, he says this, He who descended is the one who ascended, that's Jesus, far above the heavens, that he, that's Jesus, might fill all things. Also in verse 13, we are doing ministry, Paul is talking about here, until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is huge to not miss. That it is here in the gospel that Paul is holding out the promise of fullness that the world says is in sin, but God says is in Christ and given to you. That you might finally have the very things you are longing for, the very desire of your gluttonous heart to consume all the more and all the more for things that only bring greater callousness or greater shame and greater pain in your life. God says, here it is in the full that you might be filled in Jesus. And as you seek to live out your salvation according to Christ, you receive the fullness that sin whispers but never provides. But if you look at every time Paul is talking about this fullness in Christ. It is always in, in either response to or in a commendation to, live your lives differently. To experience this fullness means that we live in a way where we are increasingly living like Christ. That's an ominous task, isn't it? We all have role models in our life, and we just wish to look like that role model someday, to act like that role model, to speak like that role model. And here, the role model is Jesus Christ. But this has legs because of the goodness of the gospel. Because Jesus, and only Jesus, is not only the one to whom we are to grow into, but he is the one who changes our desires. Did you see that in verses 21 through 24? Assuming you've heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So what is the truth? Here he says it. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God 
in true righteousness and true holiness. You see, it is Jesus and his gospel work which finally provides the promise of changed desires. He really does. He really can set apart the deceitful desires and put on good desires in your heart. I was talking with a man the other day, and he was talking about sins. He's now in his 30s, and he's talking about sins that he has participated in since he was a teenager. And he saw everything the Bible had to say about the danger of those sins. But then he saw this track record, these habits, these seemingly irreversible ways in which that sin had calloused his mind and programmed his heart. And he said, how will I ever be free? How will this ever loosen the grip it has on my life? He says, I can see what the Bible says, and it feels crushing. And maybe that's you. Maybe there's an area in your life that you and you alone know seems to be untouched, unchangeable, impossible to deal with. But here I brought this man to this text, and I said, look, look at the hope of Jesus, that he really can change you by grace, that he can take things and put them away through your efforts so that you might be renewed and put on. And how does he do this? Well, in one part, Jesus does the work. In Colossians, he says he takes our old self and he puts it on the cross with him. Jesus dies with your old self so it can no longer have mastery over you. There is real hope that Jesus can change your life and your patterns because the gospel is no small cause. The gospel is the very power of God in this world and in your heart. And Paul says the truth of this gospel is this. The truth which is in Jesus Christ, the truth that each believer has to reconcile with is that when you are saved by Jesus, you don't go back to where you were. You put off what is old, you put on what is new and finally true. You see that? Finally you get true righteousness. And you continue to be renewed in your mind. Isn't that a great hope? that someday our minds can be renewed. That not only do we not do sin, but increasingly in this life and ultimately in the next life, our minds won't even desire sin. You see, it's only the gospel where we can put off the old because we can finally put on what we were finally looking for. We are able to put on the new self made in the image of God. That's what we were made for. We were made in God's image. We were made to look like this. And finally, God has opened the wardrobe of heaven that we might clothe ourselves in Christ. We finally have true righteousness and true holiness, which means not only do we act rightly, do what is holy, but we can feel right because Jesus has given us that righteousness. He rests our hearts in what Jesus has done. Now, there is a pragmatic danger to this simplicity that is seeming in here. Okay, I put off, I put on, and I'm done. Seems simple, right? It's like New Year's resolutions. We make them and we do them and then we wait for next year and we make new ones and we keep those. Hopefully, probably not. No, we didn't. But we think we can when it comes to this. We have this faux pragmatism that it's going to be simple and we have this idea that we're just going to storm the Christian life and be turning switches off and on and we're going to make it to heaven. But when Paul here talks about the renewing of your mind, the grammar that's there is that this will be a continual, ongoing process indefinitely into the future. Yes, Jesus has changed us. We looked at that two weeks ago. We have been rooted and grounded in Christ's work, but there is much effort to be done for us, by us, to renew our minds. Yes, Jesus, and only Jesus, gives us the power for true conversion. But we are not perfected overnight. We're declared righteous because of what Jesus did, but we are not made righteous. We don't come out of this weird transformation tube being stamped with the abs of Jesus looking perfect for the world to see. But God sees Jesus' righteousness declared to us. But Jesus now empowers us to grow to be like him. Your old self, for the first time, is finally dead. But it needs to be carried away.
And this takes time. It is a daily process to go to Jesus and to ask him to help you with your desires and with your actions. Do you have this kind of awareness of your conversion? Do you see this kind of change as necessary, as life-giving, as the most beautiful command that will ever be laid on your shoulders? Or on the flip side, have you become apathetic to these commands because you're disappointed at the rate in which Jesus is changing you? It seems too hard because the truth is this conversion, it won't be completed here in this world. And this is why Paul's favorite word to describe our conversion in the book of Ephesians is the word walk. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Walk in love. Walk as children of the light. Walk not as unwise, but as wise. The, the, the life of faith is not a sprint, and not, nor is it a couch, but it is a slow and daily process in grace. There is so much hope that we can find true joy and true change in Jesus, but it comes over time. And we need to trust that this gospel, this work that Jesus did, this identity that we now have in him is really capable to give us grace to change even when the walk seems difficult. That's where we pull the cross into our day-to-day life and we say, it is hard and I don't know how, but I know that you are able. And I know that it might not look like complete elimination of sin tomorrow, but I can make progress. Where am I seeing that? Where can I remind myself of the grace that is daily mine in Jesus Christ? Because I've seen stories of people as adults who are in completely unbiblical settings doing these terrible, sensual things that Paul is talking about. And when they're saved, Jesus immediately and radically like, gives them a real new heart. They don't even desire that stuff anymore. And that is so encouraging and beautiful to hear. I didn't have that when I got saved. And I'm get, my guess is that that's the more common experience for all of us. Is that we wrestle with those desires. We wrestle changing our lives. And that's because it is a long road to unlearn what sin has taught us. Sin is immensely powerful. And that's why it's dangerous. That's why the Bible warns us of it. But Jesus is even more powerful, and that's why he's our Savior. And so now Paul is going to move into this string of commands in light of this wonderful thing, this goodness that God has given us in our salvation, the hope that we really can put off, put on, and be renewed. He's going to give us some imperatives. It's almost like this is an immediate assessment that Paul is giving to the church and to us today to say, where do you match up in this? Are you practicing these things? There are certainly endless ways in which we can live out this salvation. But I'm going to give you some examples of what this might look like. And this is our third point today, the life of conversion. If we were to assess our life with this life, where do we see conversion at work? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time breaking down these imperatives because the truth is they're relatively clear to understand. But what I do want us to see as we're going through this are two things. First, I want us to see Paul's repeated uh, teaching to put on and put off. That's what we just saw, and that's going to show up in these imperatives as well. We put off what is sinful, and we put on what is good and true in Jesus Christ. Think of it as clothes. If all you do is put on new clothes without taking off the old one, you're probably a junior higher. And you just get stinkier and nastier and smellier. And it begins to just poison everything. If all we start to do is put on habits of holiness, but we don't put off the desires for sin, we're not really doing what Jesus has called us to do. Conversely, if all you do is take off your clothes, you're just going to get arrested. And that's not good either. It's this pattern of putting on Christ and taking off what is old, and then we're able to do what Jesus has called us to do. The conversion that Paul is going to encourage us to live out is one that goes so much further than what our secular society says is conversion, which is most typically seen in putting off. If you don't do these things, you're good. But Paul pushes further with the gospel. Second, I want you to see how these commands get at just about every area of our life. It gets at our our mind and our desire for truth, It gets at our heart, our hands, our mouth, and what Paul is going to summarize as the whole of our spirit, the whole of who you are. And let's look at these 
in closing. I encourage you, if you have your notes or your Bible, to keep that open because we're just going to kind of roll through this afterwards. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, next week, Paul's going to continue some commands, but what's distinct about this set of commands is that they impact the way we live together. And this is no surprise that this is where Paul goes with this text because the whole point of Ephesians is to create and shape the community of the church. That's what Paul has long been going, that getting to is shaping this church. And what Paul is saying here is that a converted church lives differently because they've been changed by Jesus. True conversion rooted in true righteousness and holiness not only compels us to not do what is wrong, but allows us to put on what is right. And from the outside eye, this is where this distinction is important. We, the secular world looks at this text and they see the first half of everything going on, and this is already stellar. Here you have someone who's not lying, they're not violent and anger, they're not stealing anymore, and they have no corrupting language. That is a superstar citizen. But the gospel actually goes deeper than superficial conversion. And so should Jesus' work in you. Because it changes our desires, we now desire to participate in something new, something better. And so behind each of these imperatives, Paul gives a compelling motivation behind it. Paul says that we as a church should not only put away falsehood, and lying to one another, but instead we should speak truth to one another. Why? Because truth always wins. That's not what he says, is it? Because truth is always right. That's not what he says. He says we speak truth because we are members of one another. That's what we looked at last week, right? That as we grow in Christ, we have a responsibility to help others grow in Christ. The truth that Paul has been talking about in this text is the truth that those who are saved by Jesus should not continue to walk according to their sin. And it is in the best interest of the church that we as members do not remain silent in these areas. To be silent, Paul says, is to be false. To be silent is to be deceitful. To be silent is to heal a wound, heal a wound lightly. But instead, we speak the truth of the gospel. We love truth in our culture, don't we? It's just that we all seem to have different truths now. And when we have those truths, we are prone to either withdraw and judge those who don't think this way. I know the truth. Is it easy to do that in church too? They're struggling with sin. If they only knew Jesus like I knew Jesus. It's internalized. Or what we do is we take truth and we go to Facebook or Twitter or we come into our coffee shop where there's another individual and we weaponize it and we just use it like a battle axe, hacking at people, saying that's not what's true. But this is where Paul's analogy of membership is so important. It's no good to your own body to withdraw and stay silent. But neither is it good to only maim with a lack of love. But instead, the truth we have in Scripture compels us to speak, and it compels us to speak gently in love for restoration. Where are you prone to one way or the other in this building? And how does the truth of the gospel lead you to either speak or to be more gentle in your speech? Paul then moves from our desire for truth and he addresses the heart where he warns of anger. He doesn't say don't be angry, which would be easier if he would have just said that, but he didn't. Why wouldn't he? Because sin should make us angry. Sin makes God angry. And it should anger us too. But we are not God. And that means that we are prone to sin in our anger in ways that God is not prone to sin. We can sin in our anger, and this happens most visibly and most uh, clearly when it's like violent and public, where we're yelling at each other or we're harming one another, and just about everybody in our world says, don't do that. Find a better way to process anger. And what's interesting 
going back to what we just looked at, is what our world says is just don't be around people that make you angry. We will have no churches if we practice that. (laughs) But the gospel does something better, doesn't it? But it's not actually the public outbursts of anger that Paul is warning us against, is it? Paul is less concerned about the visible outbreak of anger, and he's more concerned about the silent and secret anger which eats away at our hearts and makes us bitter and resentful. And he sets a great precedent here. Don't go to bed angry. Life in the church and life in this world means that you will encounter people who sin and make you angry. But to leave it unresolved is to give the devil a foothold in your life. And more significantly, it's to give the devil a bunker in our church. So we seek to put our anger to bed when we go to bed. We seek to humbly, with our anger, go to God and go to others and ask for help. So that maybe we could do two things. The first is to overlook it, knowing that Jesus has paid for all sin. That we don't have to be vindicated because Jesus was vindicated for us. Or perhaps it is something that is an ongoing sin issue in the life of someone, which for their good, not for your self-righteous vindication, for their good, you need to go confront them lovingly and with wisdom of other believers and with the grace of Jesus. But Jesus is concerned, Paul is concerned here about the silent anger in your heart. Next, he moves to the hands. He says the thief not only stops sealing, but stealing, but he works to share. He makes honest labor and shares with everyone. What a miraculous conversion. That not only does he not steal, but now he's knocking on your door giving you gifts. And that's the power of the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it amazing to think that regardless of the sins you once had, Jesus now takes those gifts and he uses them for the service of his kingdom. That's what it means to be generous. That's what conversion does to us, is it takes the gifts that we might so quickly use to serve ourselves, and it fixes it on the stewardship towards Christ, of serving those around you. Conversion calls us to use our minds to share truth, our hearts to be free from bitterness, our hands to be set to generosity, and lastly, Paul wants our words to be fitted with grace. He says, let no corrupting or worthless talk come out of your mouth, but only that which builds up so that those who hear it might receive grace. Don't we generally only think of our words in light of who we're speaking to or about? But what's interesting is the emphasis in this text is not necessarily you or the person you're speaking about, but the context in which you're speaking. That our words actually have an impact on our church. And we could take a quick poll. How many of you have been sarcastic? When was the last time you were publicly sarcastic? is probably this morning. We don't have to look back very far. Now the world looks and says, well, I didn't mean it in ill will. It wasn't really harmful. But that's not the standard Paul uses, is it? The standard isn't, do your words do no harm? The standard is, do your words build up? Does it give grace? When was the last time? And maybe this is your challenge today. Last week, I challenged you to have a spiritual conversation with someone. This week, I challenge you to publicly affirm someone for the work that Jesus is doing in their life. So those who hear it, may receive grace, that gossip and slander and sarcasm, they can be put away because instead we could use our words to build up for grace, our words measured out in love and liberally spoken in kindness. And these four things, the mind, the heart, the hands, and the mouth, Paul says, where are you at? Because the truth is, is that all of this is summarized with how we spiritually connect with God. In this last part, look at Paul, how it connects, Paul connects it not only to people, but to God himself. And we see the Trinitarian nature of conversion. We see God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all involved here in verses 30 through 5, chapter 2. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So now you see the two commands as to how we walk. Put off. Do not walk as the Gentiles do. Put on, but walk as Christ And so there are real imperatives. There are things that Paul is expecting you because of your salvation to do. There are things that are demanded of Christians to do, but don't lose the the fact of what Paul is getting at in these final verses, and that is this. If you have not been forgiven by Jesus, 
you can't forgive anyone else. Not in a true sense. And if you have hardness of heart, which we saw in the first part, morality does not soften your heart. It doesn't change your heart. You can be as moral as you want, but those desires, those callousness, that greediness is always there. But what changes our heart is being loved by Jesus. What changes our heart is seeing that Jesus and Jesus alone did this. It is precisely because true believers have experienced mercy that we can trust that Jesus is always for our good, even when change seems hard. It's because we've been forgiven and restored to God that we can realize that everything we want in sin has already been given to us in Jesus. And so the very first imperative Paul gives in this text is to believe in Jesus. If you haven't done anything in here today, I pray you do that. And if you do that, well, now take your laundry list home and by grace, make some headway in here. But here we have the change that you've always wanted but have never been able to have. It is the freest of all gifts given to us in Jesus, but it is the costliness of all lives. And this is what we get to do as the church, as we grow up into the measure of the fullness of the stature of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you work in our hearts so that we might experience this change. Change most ultimately in being saved by Jesus, and then change that continues to make us more like Jesus. Lord, I pray you protect us from seeing the sum of our faith in external commands, or you protect us from seeing the sum of our faith as something which is all grace and we can be apathetic towards commands. But Lord, help us see the right place for living out our salvation because of what Jesus has done, because of the joy set before us to live like Christ. And we pray we do that well in our church so that we might know you and share your love with others. We pray this in your name. Amen.